What we're going to do is we're going to start the panel discussion. I'm going to kind of lead a discussion with some questions. Uh, the first question is, why is this issue so important for you? We'll start with you, Matt. And uh, just give a brief introduction. And for the sake of time, uh, maybe take a minute, Max, too. Uh, why is this issue of race so important for you? So for me individually, as opposed to ministry or business. Or, uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in the northeast uh, part of Ohio, which is extremely white, not just in the winter, but throughout the year. Um, and although some of my friends were not, they were uh, different races. And I watched some things, and I actually have even further back history into my grandparents who came from Germany and were mixed up in a lot of mess. Um, That was, even when they came to America, was perpetrated through my family. Uh, That was not right. It did not sound like the Jesus we talked about on Sunday. Um, So there was a lot of conflict there. Plus, many of my friends, I just would friend anybody that would hang out with me. So, and those weren't the popular ones. So, I began to like be introduced into into the division that existed, and even deeper prejudice and racism. Um, so my, my my wife and I made a conscious decision. We didn't want to bring our boys up in that environment, and that was one of the decisions. Uh, that was one of the factors in our decision to move to Baltimore in 1999. And uh, I, I didn't realize when you get into diversity what that means, and we can talk about that later, but. I knew I wanted my boys to grow up next to people that didn't talk like them, didn't look like them, um, and um, that, that's just something that's close to my heart. And everything that Jeremy and my brother said here about who God is and injustice just articulated my heart. So I'll leave it at that. You said a minute. So. Um, you wanted us to introduce ourselves, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm Ekemeni, and uh, I'm a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary. I write and speak and do typically anti-racism work. Um, so f- for me, the issue of race is very important for me because it's something that's impacted my life ever since. That's all I've ever really experienced uh, as a, a black child and a black woman, you know, um, growing up, I grew up in California, you know, and so a liberal stronghold, and we liberals love to think they're not racist, but they are, you know, and so, (laughs) you know, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with, uh, that brand of racism, and so, uh, and so, so it's something that's always, uh, impacted me, and I'm, it, it's just, it's an, and when I, think about it just taking it out of my own personal context it is an assault on the gospel it is an assault on the image of god the problem with racism is that you don't see me as a human being you don't see me as equal to you as a full human being that god has made that is a problem you know and and so for me i'm thinking about souls here you know and this racism has actually kept people from the church and keeps people in the church bound and so this is, this is a, a very serious problem, not just for black people, not just for Asians, not just for Hispanics, but the soul of my white brothers and sisters. You know, um, how can you say that you love God and yet you hate me, your brother, your, your sister? You know, and hate, I think we sometimes we think it has to be an active thing. 
you know, but no, no, no. <laughs> Implicit bias is real, you know, and so, and, and there's a deep-seated hatred in there. So anyways, I could go on all, all day long, <laughs> but, but th that's just, th those are the things that really come to mind and what's most salient for me. Well, I kind of want to let her go ahead all day long. But I just... <laughs> you kicked me out. <laughs> say that, say that. <laughs> I, I agree with my, my brother. So, you know, I, I come to this um, in, a, in a long, stony path. Um, so some of you know I was, a, I was a Muslim in the 80s, and I ran, although I was a Sunni Muslim, I ran with a lot of cats in the nation. And so a kind of black nationalist, Afrocentric, uh, ideology was what I was breathing and, and, and eating, and um, I was a racist. Mm -hmm. No two ways about it. Uh, I, I would have argued um, that it was love for my people, but it was black supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, and when the Lord <laughs> saved me, man, he took all of that away from me in an instant. Mm -hmm. It's one of the subjective things that assures me that he saved me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be, 20 years ago, it would be impossible for me to be in this room. Mm. It, just, it just would have been. Um, and I especially, you know, I'm, I should be running this rabbit trail, but I especially <laughs> didn't like the frat daddies. But, you know, that's another thing. But, you know, just which were symbolic of, of privilege and, and willful ignorance and a lot of other things. And, and it was just full of, full of hatred. Um, and so part of what brings me to this conversation is knowing the change the Lord has worked in my own heart. I'm hopeful for his grace in everybody else's life. Um, and the other thing is what my sister has been saying. This is a real violence to ourselves and to others. Um, and if we don't confront it with the resources of the gospel, we'll continue to be doing violence to each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't want to be a bystander yeah. in that. Uh, I, I'd rather, you know, put my pound of flesh in it and do what little bit I can and trust the Lord to, to use it. So hi, everybody. Um, my name's uh, Jenny Yang, and I am from Baltimore City, and um, I've lived here for um, a little over a decade, actually. Um, so my entire worldview is shaped fundamentally by the fact that I'm an Asian-American woman. Um, you know, from the fact that I was born in this country to immigrant parents who came immigrated here and faced a lot of challenges and struggles, um, I know what it's like to always be considered the other, um, always be considered someone who's not fully American, um, grew up in a home where, you know, English wasn't necessarily our first language spoken in our household, um, and this continual kind of um, assault, I think, on my identity, um, especially in this past year, has always been this issue of the fact that I'm considered a foreigner at all times, like I can never be fully American. And so I think the issue of race is fundamental, not just to me as an Asian, but race has been tied to the history of our country since its founding up until now. And you really can't separate race out from, from how we are as citizens of this, of this great nation. Um, and you see race constantly being played out um, in issues of power and of struggle and of challenge, I think, in our society today. And so, um, you know, I live in Baltimore City, and um, most of my neighbors are African-American. And, you know, it's still an issue that I encounter, um, you know, day-to-day -day, um, just living in my neighborhood. And so um, it's always something that's been confronting me and my identity, um, and it's how I really fundamentally view um, everything around me, and even as a Christian woman as well. So... 
Today we get to be on a panel and we get to hear speakers and we sing songs. Um, but uh, as a general rule, it seems to me that it's very difficult for most churches or I don't want to use the word evangelical because you guys will stone me now because you know what I'm saying. Uh, so you know what I mean. So for, for people who profess to be Christians, <laughs> um, it seems to me that it's difficult to talk about the subject of race. In you guys' opinion, if you perceive that there are difficulties to have real conversations about race, could you talk about why you believe it's difficult? Don't all go at once or anything. I mean, I feel like the, the issue with talking about race within the church is an issue that our society at large faces when we talk about race, right? So um, I think just growing up, you're accustomed to not pointing out people's differences, right? You want to perpetuate this idea that, okay, we're all the same. You know, we all believe the same things. Perhaps we all want, you know, a better future for our children. And so I think, especially as parents, you know, oftentimes we don't want to talk to our children about the fact that people are different from each other. And I think that that idea of differentiation is something that permeates within the church as well, um, especially for church leaders and pastors where oftentimes there's a sense that whenever we talk about race, it's going to cause further division within the church. But I think when we go into that assumption of not wanting to talk about race, we basically demean the fact that race, race is such a critical part of our identities, especially for people of color. And I think that's a very privileged position to be in to say race doesn't matter, that it's not something to be talked about, because there's a fear that we don't know how to kind of um, to embrace the topic in a way that lands people in a better place. Um, but I think that lack of empathy, that lack of actually uh, thinking about race as a social construct and something that permeates everything around us, um, it's, a, it's an opportunity for discipleship within the church that I think really hasn't taken place in a concrete way. Um, and so I think this conversation has to start with the gospel and the fact that racism is fundam fundamentally about our sinful nature. Um, and then actually exploring, well, what is the, the construct of race? How has it impacted all of our lives in a way that's uh, created power struggles within our country? And how do you address some of that in a real tangible way, especially for people of color who are hurting, for immigrants, um, for, you know, people, you know, in prison, for, you know, Asian Americans? I mean, it got, really cuts across the board, and I feel like that really hasn't taken place yet. Yeah, I, I just sort of picking up where she is, I, I think it's a difficult conversation for some people to have. Uh, and, and in some ways, I think this breaks down generationally as well. Um, and so I think the conversation among uh, many millennials has a different feel and shape to it, texture to it, than, say, folks who are in their 50s and, and so on. Um, but I think the, the difficulty occurs in part because people don't perceive a solution. They don't perceive a strategy for having healthy conversation. And they don't perceive any sympathy. Uh, and, and that sort of goes both ways. So you enter the race conversation... Uh, so when I was, I'm a social, social scientist by training, I did my graduate research in racial identity formation. And um, it became really evident to me in doing that research a couple years in, it was like, oh, once you admit this category, there's no escape from it. And so it, 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 when people are feeling and thinking that way, you, you kind of go, well, well what's, what's victory look like? We'll illustrate it another way, let's shift to abortion. What, what does victory look like in, in an abortion? It can't merely be the end of, or the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Because, what, are we going to be satisfied that we increase the number of single-parent households? 
are we going to be satisfied that those fathers who encourage the abortion, that the single biggest predictor of whether or not a woman chooses to abort a child is whether or not the, the father is supportive or not? Are we going to be satisfied that those guys are abandoning women and children? So it cannot be merely the, the sort of overturning of Roe v. Wade. We've got to have a more robust vision for what it means to be pro-life and what it means to win that victory. Same thing is, is true in, in the conversation about reconciliation. It, it cannot merely mean we had ethnos conference. But we've got to have a bigger picture for them. People don't perceive a solution um, that's, that's big enough and glorious enough and, and compelling enough to sort of say, I'm going to risk this again. Those who do perceive that make that risk, I think. Um, and then, you know, again, what's the strategy? How do we talk about this? Everybody has this sense of the moment I bring this up, it's going to blow up on me, right? There's not going to be any empathy or sympathy. And it doesn't matter if you're an African-American saying for the umpteen time, yo, you're killing me, doc, you're killing me. Or if it's a white brother who's feeling like I just can't go near this because I'm going to be called a racist. I'm going to feel like I'm a racist. I'm, I'm not going to be understood. Everybody's kind of struggling with, can I get a little sympathy, a little empathy so that we can have the conversation? And where that's not there, it's terribly hard to broker it. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, from my own experience, I, I, I'm always big on precision and being clear on who we're talking about and what we're talking about. So from my own experience, uh, as a minority, we never have a problem talking about race. I mean, like, I mean, it literally, this is, I mean, it, it, I mean, racism, it just impacts us. As Jenny said, like every day there's, there's some element, you know, that, that touches upon our identities, right? And, and assaults it in some way. And so that's not some, that's not a conversation that I've found. Even my other, whether Hispanic or Asian brothers and sisters have really easy, difficulty talking about. I found that, um, there's a difficulty when we're speaking to our white brothers and sisters. And I, for me, um, it's clear to me, and I'm taking racism out of a sociological category right now just for this moment. I, I see spiritual warfare at work when it comes up. You know, so I'm thinking, man, this is spiritual wickedness in high places. White supremacy and racism. It is the air that we breathe. It is in the water we drink. Okay, ask the people in Flint. Okay, it is in the Dakota Access Pipeline. Let's ask our native brothers and sisters who are fighting. Okay, for their land. It's everywhere. You know, so so and and I guess part of it is that there's this idea that it's like a, an opinion or a feeling. Yes, it does impact us personally, but also structurally. There are objective realities that we can actually point to, like, mm, actually, this is evidence of racism and systemic racism. Um, but there's just a, a refusal, you know, to, to see that. And so I, 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 so I approach it in that way, understanding, like, oh, man, I'm not wrestling against flesh and blood, man. Because if, if it's really about intellect, you know, and proof and facts, the, the, the evidence is there. It's just, it's there, you know, so that's how I know, oh, we're not talking about facts here. You feel convicted, you know, and implicated in this, and you're complicit in this, but the gospel is big enough for that. I mean, the gospel calls us to, to be lovers of truth, because truth is a person, Jesus Christ. We have to get this. So I, to me, I see that we don't have an expansive understanding of this gospel, you know, and so and so somehow we've bought into this very weak gospel, which is not a gospel at all, that 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 makes us run away, you know, from confessing this particular sin, you know, and so um, and, and to me that's just that, that that is not a good witness to the world. The world wants to see us confessing and repenting because they're bearing the brunt, you know, of what the the church has wrought, and that's just the truth. So.
as I see it. Wow. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, am I supposed to follow up that? No. <laughs> I, I had to last time. Now it's your turn. <laughs> Well, I'm up here learning, but as, I'm, as Pastor Michael asked that question, um, so I'm not as highly intelligent as these folks are, and I, I don't say that just to float some weird um, compliment. I really mean it. The depth of intelligence and how much thought I value people who can put thought into things, a lot because I can't, so I'm a little envious, but that's another topic. I'm doing counseling. It'll be all right. Um, <laughs> but I, I do want to talk about the heart of this, the heart aspect of this. And, you know, something emerged for me Saturday and Sunday, which was a lot of anxiety going into this election, not because of the rhetoric and the stuff, but I, I began to realize that half of my friends were going to be very upset and the other half were going to be wrong after this election. <laughs> right? Because like Jeremy said, we have a winner and we have a loser, you know, and, and the winners think, you know, somebody's out there prophesying and doing all this, that God and it's God's whatever, you know, what would if, you know, it was a small margin of votes that, what does that mean? God changed his mind? You know, I don't know. Uh, and I don't want to get caught in that. What just hurt, I, I just felt hurt already at what we've seen <clears throat> unfold since Tuesday of how we just tear each other up. And um, really that's what hurts me about racism. I think we need to understand God's heart. And um, feeling that same anxiety, now I was fortunate enough to already be scheduled Sunday night to get to pray uh, out on the Capitol in the lawn there at one of the parks and just pray for the nation, not pray for the election, but pray for the nation. And God began to deal with my heart about it. And he talked to me about racism and he said, well, if people aren't praying and coming to me, talking with me about it, why are we trying to talk to one another? Well, if we won't go to him first, why aren't we going? And that's just the lesson I learned, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't tell me to tell you that. He told me. So because of that, you know, I began to think about we don't know who we are. I'm speaking of the church right now, mm-hmm. whatever form, shape. Yeah. If you're a follower of Jesus, we don't know who we are in him, and that ignorance breeds fear, and unknown fear. And so we add another layer of insulation called the church, the church walls, or the communities we live in, and we walk around in fear. And uh, we tend to hide from what we don't understand and what we fear, and so that creates more alienation between us. So I just feel like we've got to find out what God's heart is and pray about it and be honest with God about it. You know, that's I love Pastor Dan because he's so honest in his prayers about, mm-hmm. man, oh, we got to repent. I mean, yeah. we started the conference off with repentance, you know. But Amen. to go into a deeper place of that individually and just say, um, because racism, I think, is a symptom of something bigger. Yeah. And so, and in this case, it's prayerlessness, you know, lack of communion and identity with God. Mm-hmm. Could you guys speak to the role that, Fear, each one of these, uh, maybe one of you can just take one of them each, um, the role that fear and shame and guilt, what, what role are the emotions of fear playing in the discussion on race? What role is shame playing in race? And what role is guilt playing in race? 
less, huh? <laughs> so, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, we should go before Kimmy. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah you if you don't get it, I'm getting it. <laughs> like, like, ladies first, unless she has an end beer. <laughs> like us to do. It's huge. I don't know that I can articulate it. From the feeling sense, I know that it all gets jumbled. And when we get jumbled, it causes action or reaction. And those reactions are even misread sometimes as adversarial, and they weren't meant to be. Mm. Um, I've watched that. I've been, one of my roles is um, I get to hang out with the Baltimore City Police Department and um, uh, we have a chaplaincy. And while the riots and the mm. protests were going on, uh, specifically to the Freddie Gray and then into the trials of the officers, um, first of all, it's interesting to me that people protest that whole kind of world or thought process, which they should. I, I'm, people should have their voice heard. But it's interesting to me that it's really like 30 or 40 who are there to have their voice heard, and then a couple hundred hippies show up, you know, um, and just hip, and do what hippies do, you know what I mean? So I'm walking around the ba downtown Baltimore, you know, you got some police that are upset, and everybody's all this tension, you know, and these cats are just walking around hugging, loving, sharing hip hippieism. Maybe we should all be like that. But um, but yeah, that. And I don't have much more to add other than I just, I watch and can see how because people don't know what to do, they'll back and then that almost creates an offense to other people. Mm -hmm. But then if some people are, uh, you know, push forward in it, you get offended too. Mm -hmm. So I do feel there's probably a level of, the, of our population that people were around that just throw their hands up like whatever mm -hmm. and go back to our little safe place. Mm -hmm. okay. It's hard. That's like what I'm saying. It's hard, right? Mm -hmm. Just sneak a quick word on guilt in real quick. I'll go after you. <laughs> quick, quick word on guilt. Um, I, I think guilt, um, well, here's how you know whether or not you understand the grace of God, right? So the answer to our mm -hmm. guilt is God's grace in yeah. Christ, right? Yeah. And here's how you know you understand the grace of God, it's by looking at what you do with your guilt. Whether you make, or, or look to make fig leaves for yourself and hide it, or, or whether you come to God, you know, openly confessing your guilt, right? And I think oftentimes the, the conversation is hindered because people feel implicated and, or accused uh, or guilty, right? And we don't like to feel guilty, Right? And, and there is still the Pharisee in us who, who wants to appear righteous, who wanting to justify themselves says, who is my neighbor? Who is a racist? You know, and, and rather than, you know, come to God and say, you know, search me. You know, is there any unclean way in me? That's it. Uh, renewing me a right spirit. Um, and, and, and sort of wash the guilt with God's grace. Then I think we'll be able to sort of handle a conversation. Because, yeah. you know, when you have already been convinced yourself of your wrong and confessed that to God, there's an amazing powerlessness that happens when my people mind. are trying to accuse you further. My, my, my. 
Yes. You just don't have anything on you. It's like, yes. okay, I confess that already. Amen. I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, Amen. Can we now have the conversation, right? Yes. There's a real power that comes from forgiveness yes. uh, and grace. Yes. And so I would just want to exhort people to not be fearful of guilt yes. and, and to sort of handle their guilt and their shame by going to God and, and receiving his grace. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go before my sister as well so she can wrap it up for us. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, especially in this past election year, um, the, the, the issue of fear has really been a challenge, I think, for a lot of Christians. And, you know, it's the fear of the other, right? And it's the fear of the unknown of what this other can do to me and my security and my comfort. Um, and I think we grew up with this idea of, of stranger danger, right? Which is don't talk to the other person who's different than you because that's going to lead you to a dangerous situation. And I feel like that unhealthy fear of the stranger has led us into adulthood where we don't want to talk to our neighbors, where we don't want to understand the story and the struggles of people who live in, in the same cities as us. And I think because of that, we have an unhealthy fear of actually building relationships with people who are different than us. And part of that has meant that we have a complete lack of empathy when we know there's people in the church who are struggling because we don't understand their story. And that's due to a lack of relationship. Um, I know in the past week, so... um, I've lived in Baltimore City for about 10 years, but I also work for an organization called World Relief where we serve uh, immigrants and refugees. And um, just this past week alone, we've gotten dozens of calls from immigrants who are deathly afraid of what a new presidency is going to mean for them. Um, Many of them have uh, kids who are born here, but their parents are here without documentation. And, you know, they don't know what's going to happen to them, and they feel like their families are going to be ripped apart in the next, you know, six months. And so they're desperately calling us to figure out what's going to happen to them. And this is a moment for the church to be the shining city on a hill because if the church is not there to really um, build these relationships and to actually um, pick up these people who are hurting and really take taking the role of the government, which, you know, who knows what they're going to be doing. Um, this is an opportunity for the church to shine because in this mo- these moments of uncertainty, if the church is not there, we are actually uh, missing out a huge opportunity to live out the gospel. Um, so I think, you know, in this, this conversation about fear, there's a difference between healthy fears and unhealthy fears. And every time we have these irrational fears about the other, it really cripples us from participating in the mission of God and reconciliation work. Very good. Very good. Well, what y'all want me to say now? <laughs> y'all done said everything. <laughs> uh, well, what, what I will say is um, with regard to uh, guilt and shame, they are bedfellows. Um, and, and you go back, you know, to the garden, Genesis 3, you know, where, well, before in the fall, you had Adam and Eve in unmitigated fellowship with God. Okay. You know, but they sinned, disobeyed him, right? And they for that guilt, and God's looking for them, and where they're hiding because of guilt and shame. And, um, and, and so kind of going back to the talk about, oh, you know, why is it hard for us to have this conversation with maybe our white brothers and sisters? Shame, you know, um, but that shame comes, it comes part and parcel with guilt, which I don't think guilt doesn't have to be a bad thing. I actually think that if you're actually responding in guilt, that's actually a good response because the Bible talks about, in Daniel, about uh, owning, you know, uh, the sins of our fathers, forefathers. And so I think that's actually a good thing. And it actually indicates the fact that we are, uh, as human beings, we are all created by this one true God. You know, we all know that we, whether you're a believer 
or not. You know that you have sinned against him, but you're either suppressing that truth, you know, in wickedness and unrighteousness if you're not a believer, or you've own that now and you've come to Christ <laughs> as your refuge you know so so we're all tied together and bound by that reality so I, guilt doesn't have to be a bad thing but it's where are you taking it to and who are you taking it to um, and so I think that's why it makes it difficult shame shame but you have to remember that Christ bore that shame too not just the guilt because what's the point of taking away the guilt if the shame is still there <laughs> you'll continue to hide and you'll continue to make your own way without Christ, you know, and so, so it's important to hold that together and to understand that he took away that guilt and that shame for us, you know, and that's why the gospel is so important and it has far-reaching implications for, for this discussion. When you guys think about the church and engaging this issue, is there one thing that's burning in your hearts and your minds that you would love to, to see the church do like you know say in 2017 if there was if you could just pick one thing that you could say at the end of 2017 this is true of the church of Jesus Christ what would that one thing be in relationship to this issue repent <laughs> and 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 explain that though cuz i mean what, yeah. what what would repentance look like in the church Um, it's a good question because when you look at Luke's gospel and the people come out to John in the different categories, John's preaching, repent, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he, he teaches them what our good Presbyterian friends would say, you know, repent of your particular sins particularly, mm-hmm. right? And, and so what it would look like would, would be various, it would be manifold, um, because what we should be pressing for is a kind of particularity in our yes. statement of our wrongdoing, yeah. right? And I think what I would, I would love to see the church, uh, individuals in the Christian church, repent of their individual sins. Yes. Yes. But I would love to see the church grow up enough to be able to also say, we have participated in or left corrected sins that have happened systematically uh, and, and mm-hmm. at an aggregate level, um, and we repent of those too, mm-hmm. right? Um, so... I think it's going to require some soul searching. I think it's going to require uh, a kind of teaching from the scriptures that's faithful to the scriptures, that that doesn't over-spiritualize the text and over-individualize the text. And so remove the text from the gritty, grimy context in which it was revealed uh, that has a nose for ethnic issues in the text. Uh, and teaches people how to handle their emotions, frankly. I mean, part of what we have to do is disciple one another in, in how to handle guilt and shame and fear. That's why it's a wonderful question. Uh, it's another one of those playground things we used to do that we somehow stopped doing. So kids are great at going up and making friends. And parents are great at teaching Jack how to handle, how to handle anger. You're like, you're upset right now, but you can't hit your sister. Keep your hands to yourself. Right, what are we doing? We're teaching Jack how to express emotion. Use your words. Use your words. Um, and we need that in the church. We need that. So I think part of that repentance, I'm seriously, right? It's true. Part of that repentance is um, loving one another enough to, to say, use your words. And what are you feeling? And you express it. Act on it appropriately. Uh, and bring to pass, back to Luke's gospel, Bring forward fruit in keeping with repentance. Yes. 
or to use the language of Paul later in Acts where he says he, you know, he taught that he preached the gospel. They should repent and they should prove their repentance by their deeds. Uh, and this is where the systemic thing is really important. So the church benefited from slavery, too. Much of the church articulated the defense for slavery. Right. So it's just down here in Virginia where it was first decided legally that to be if a slave and be baptized, that didn't free you. That was an ecclesial decision that led to a civil law. Oh, that's a lot of repenting for the church to do. And to be rolling those things back specifically. I, I, I don't know what it all looks like, but I know it's more than a signed statement, you know, vaguely repenting. What about you guys? If you could, if you could see one thing be true of the church, what would you want that one thing to be true in relationship to this issue? I'll make it easy. Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm totally looking forward today to lunch. Um, for obvious reasons, don't judge, but for other reasons. Other reasons, like this morning when we came in, it, when groups like this are sitting over a meal, perhaps, and fellowshipping and talking and getting to know one another and build trust and, and through relationships, um, you know, because for me it's been freeing to have Pastor Dan and Pastor T and Pastor Joel and other others of you that are that don't look and talk like me, uh, who love me anyways and allow me to love you in a way and if, like it's got we got to repent we got to pray we got to repent do all the things we're saying but it become it has to become tangible mm-hmm. that can happen at a meal I'm available if you want to uh, go have lunch anytime. Um, <laughs> Because that's where it's happened, you know. Sometimes in church we play a role. We do it because we have to. If we would have all brought bowls of water and washed each other's feet today or some other ritualistic thing, um, you have to work through how much of this is true, how much of this is just a ritual, because you know foot washing is completely awkward and weird. So, you know what I mean? Like if you impose that on somebody, it can't happen that way. It's got to happen very intentional. Uh, and very relational. So if I could see the church do one thing, it'd be everybody in the Church of America. Take somebody out that you're not, you don't know them, and you're not sure about them. Sit down with them and spend time with them. Wow, that's good. That's it. That's all. Um, for me, oh sorry, did you? <laughs> uh, I there's a lot, but uh, so you said by the this is just an idealistic thing, right? One okay. thing. <laughs> one thing. Okay. I would really love for the church to take anti-racism work seriously, okay? And that requires truth-telling. And so, and that's what I'm like, come on now. Because <laughs> we, we can't reconcile, we have to reconcile around truth. And so, and I think honestly, if I'm honest, I think that we've been doing it wrong and backwards. We've been doing all these racial reconciliation talks and all these meetings, but really what we're doing is putting a Band-Aid on a laceration, you know, that has gotten infected. And now the body has gangrene. And, and we have to be very honest about those things. So I think that we need to, to, to really embrace this, push into this truth, no matter how ugly, no matter how hard it is, you know, so that we can actually see clearly and then we can know what we need to do. And then we can see the church actually advocating for people in tangible ways. I really want the, the, um, the church to really care for the most vulnerable not just the children in the womb. Yes, them too, but I want us to be comprehensively pro-life, 
that means advocating for unjust our public system, public education system that is in shambles. Yeah. I'm in Philadelphia. You guys are in Baltimore. I don't think I need to tell you guys what's going yeah. on. Yeah. You know, seriously, I mean, this our children. I mean, what's happening? You know. So I, I think there's so many things that we can do as a church to rise up and own different causes and do justice in very tangible ways. But I think it's going to require us to recognize where we've been complicit and where you know where we need to own that truth and press in. So. Well, I, I work a lot with our um, U.S. government, and, you know, after these elections, um, there's going to be new members of Congress. Obviously, we have a new president. Right. And, you know, I feel like even within the church, we're afraid of getting political. Um, I think we, you know, have a disdain for politics because, obviously, when you hear the term evangelical, it's, it's tied to either one party or tied to very several issues. But what would it mean for the church to have a consistent ethic of life across a broad range of public policy issues? Where when we're talking about criminal justice reform, we are speaking up the churches in that conversation because we know that systems affect our brothers and sisters. Or when Congress is talking about border security and immigration reform, we're we're speaking up and contacting our elected officials to say, hey, we don't want just border security. What are you going to do with the individuals in our country today who don't have legal status? Are we going to deport them? Or can there be some kind of common sense immigration reform to bring them out of the shadows? Or when we talk about um, education to really say, yes, we need vibrant public schools, we need to support our teachers, but we need to support our, our students as well. Um, the church has to be in the public square, and yes, I feel like yes. whenever we're not using our voice and our influence to actually speak up for our brothers and sisters who are on the margins, are on the margins, we're creating a vacuum where people who are not followers of Christ are actually influencing our systems and our policies that are impacting people yeah. who are hurting in yes. our country today. Yes. So um, Bill Foster, who's a journalist, said that you know, um, charity is giving someone crumbs off your table, but justice is providing a place at your table. Yes. So we, as the people of God, need to That's be good. about expanding the table of God. So and the table in this country is our systems and our laws and our policies. Mm-hmm. And with a new administration, we have to speak into this in the public square so that when we're debating policy, that we're not removed from that, but we're actually creating systems and structures that reflect the, the goodness of God to all people in our country. Man, I'm so grateful for this sister and, mm-hmm. and what she's just dropping in that because what, what it reminds me of is the need for, you asked the question in terms of the church, and I think the church needs to bring to bear pressure to create those kinds totally. of political realities. Totally. And, and just as a sort of object lesson, a history lesson is, now, now fra- South Africa is a fragile country in many ways, mm-hmm. but in the end of apartheid, uh, South Africa did something uh, under the, the sort of leadership of Mandela, but also, you know, conservatives don't like him much, theological conservatives don't like him much, but also Bishop Tutu uh, and others. And that was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm-hmm. This is a mm-hmm. countrywide mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. led by government and the church for people to confess, forgive, and be reconciled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've got people who were part of the apartheid government, say officers, sitting down across from you know, an, an older woman from a shanty town admitting that I killed your son and brutalized your son and these things and talking together through that. And that woman extending forgiveness and reconciliation is the only reason South Africa has not destroyed itself. Wow. It's the only reason why minority white South Africans who feared that the end of apartheid would mean this kind of um, <coughs> racial annihilation mm-hmm. have actually not seen that. 
And so we're a country with a longer history coming out of a very similar system, honestly, who's never had a point in our history where we've done truth and reconciliation. And so all of our efforts are, are, are faulty and, and feeble and, and uneven. And I think the church needs to play a role in, in this vision of justice my sister's talking about. Yeah, and can I just comment? I think oftentimes when we think about racism, we think it's an individual between me and you and me and, you know, this other person. But racism is systemic. It, if you look at the history of our country, we have systematized racism in our country. So, you know, when, we've, when the pilgrims first came to this country, they annihilated an entire people group, the Native Americans, and now they're living on reservations and really trying to fight for their rights to, to be on that land. Um, or when we systematized racism and built a whole economy around slavery. And we're still paying, the, you know, the debt of that today. Um, and it's still not being recognized, the ramifications of what that system meant for us today, for, for our African-American brothers and sisters, or the fact that we detained, you know, over 100,000 Japanese um, during the height of communism yeah, when we yeah. felt like, you know, they were spies for the Japanese government. Um, and even today, um, if you guys have seen the uh, Netflix documentary 13, it talks about how, you know, so many, why, you know, the United States has 5% of the world's population, but we incarcerate 25% of the world's population. So there's, there's a disconnect there. And most of the people in our presence are people of color. And, you know, the reason for that was when, when Nixon was our president, he knew that uh, hippies and African-Americans were voting mostly Democratic. And so he basically put into uh, place policies that would imprison people because um, they didn't want to have the political power in our country today or he didn't want them mm-hmm. to have the political uh, power in our country today. And so you have to really dig into the, the root issues of why we have certain policies, why we have you know, criminal justice um, issues in our country today. And a lot of it is, is um, because we want to other people of color. Mm-hmm. And that's why people of color in our country has faced so much uh, oppression and injustice. And so I think, you know, even as we think about racism on a personal and individual level, we also have to look at the systems and the structures and really tackle some of those really difficult things, which means using our voice in the public square and mm-hmm. speaking up to our elected officials who have the power to make some of these critical decisions. So good. Can I just say something? Just piggyback off of what Jenny said, bringing up Nixon. Uh, you know, the reality is that history is past and present, and it's, it's living and breathing within us, really. Um, and so when you think about Nixon's colorblind policies, talking about law and order and all of those things, which we're now hearing again you know, from Trump, that what he did was, and what you're saying is, that, that racism is systemic. It's hidden in the laws. It's very clear for maybe more of us, for some of us to see more than others, but it is there. And so when we hear people talking about, I don't see color, <laughs> we we have imbibed that you know and so so it really is in the fabric of our 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 nation and in our churches and so a lot of that colorblind rhetoric that's not something that people just you know happen to come up with on their own that is something that has been uh come from the powers that be you know that has trickled down for lack of a better term you know it too <laughs> you know but but really I, I am echoing back to Reagan and I am echoing back to Nixon you know because they are the ones and if you re- watch that documentary you'll see that you know how that colorblind you know um, racism I'll call it that is in those laws and so then when we hear those things you know from brothers and sisters in Christ saying I'm, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't see you as black. And what do you, well, if you don't see me as black, then you don't see me. You know, and so, so I think that it causes a, lo- a lot of harm, collateral damage that, that's done from that. So I just wanted to say I, I think one of our greatest challenges is that 
we want to see things happen in the world, but they're not happening in the yeah. church. Come on. <laughs> so we, we decry Trump, but we got a lot of Trump in our church. Come on. Trump and I'm not talking about the hair piece and all that. I'm talking about, <laughs> I'm talking about his psychosis yeah, and yeah. his emotional and his philosophical bends. We decry Hillary, but we got a lot of Hillary in the church, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge for the church is that the church is not a lab where we, as you said, have declared and, and are practicing these things. And so that makes yeah. it very challenging to see it in the world. I want to bring this to a close uh, by, in, in three ways. Rapid fire here. Um, and the first one's going to be the hardest. Well, the third one will be hard, too. Maybe. <laughs> Here's the first one. I want you to think about the hardest but the truest statement in relationship to this issue. And then if you feel comfortable, say it. The hardest and the truest statement in relationship to this issue. And if you feel comfortable, say it. That just comes to mind. Yep. The heart, and, and, and this can't be, you know, we all just need to do better. That's not really hard. Or, you know, black people and white people need to, we need to do more ethnos conferences. That's not hard. I'm talking about, you know, remember when Jesus was going off in John 6 and they said, this is some hard truths. Who can accept these things? Um, and not just to be offensive, but that's why I said they're hard, but they're true. It's hard, it's true. It's just a statement, not sermon. It's just a statement. The church needs to rid herself of this white supremacist gospel. We need to decolonize our minds where we see whiteness as the standard and everything and everybody else as other, where we put cultural preferences over against actual biblical principles based on the gospel. So say that again. <laughs> so the church needs to rid itself. Needs to rid herself, itself herself herself of this white supremacist of gospel. Of this white supremacist mm-hmm. gospel that, that which is different from the true which gospel. Which is different from the true gospel. Okay. <laughs> so I'll just say ditto. <laughs> and white brothers and sisters need to hear that, mm-hmm. and I'll give my answer to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that's it. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I was sitting here wrestling with the words, and 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 you, you, you know, she said it better than I was thinking it. Um, to put it another way, there are, in fact, a lot of professing, gospel preaching, Bible believing, mm-hmm. truth defending Christians who actually do not have the gospel. Come on. Um, And have packaged a lot of things uh, as the gospel that are not the good news. Uh, The church is more dead than we recognize. And and there are uh, a lot of well-known pastors uh, and less-known pastors who are, in fact, passing along racist attitude and sentiment and teaching and perspective in the name of truth um, to their people. Mm. Um, And we have not recognized how well 
discipled into racialist and racialized and racist thinking. The church has been worldly. You asked for one sentence, but I, <laughs> she said it so well. What she said. Um, So, um, second one, if you could address a member, a constituent of another ethnicity, and you could say one thing to them, what would you say? I think I I would address um, just one, 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 one. (laughs) I mean, Doc. You were talking about lunch, and everybody's hungry, and the food's seeping all up in here. You know, pretty soon, we're going to have an unrest up in this park. Right, right. Uh, I, 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 I balk because I feel like as an African-American, uh, speaking as an African-American, I feel like I owe apologies and um, a range of things to a range of ethnic peoples. Mm-hmm. To Native Americans and our failure often to stand in solidarity. Mm. with Native Americans and Native peoples and to hold ourselves out mm. as the most victimized people in the country. We, we, we're deeply victimized, but we, I don't know that we're the most victimized. Um, to Korean Americans in our communities and the, the, the racist attitudes that we sometimes harbor um, toward the Korean shop owner and so on. Same is true of Hispanics. Um, I, I just feel like as an African American, we have our share of racism and racist attitude and prejudice and bigotry to be confessing and repenting of as well. That's good. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, and to white people too. <laughs> Same thing. So to, to all those who don't consider them white, themselves white, um, I'm sorry um, for what white people have done. And I would say the white people, we need to listen and we need to shut up and stop being the problem. And, and until we admit that, we're not learning anything. We, we can't grow. We can't build relationship until we come to that place. And um, it, it, you know, racism, we're all victims of it. Even though some have been, you know, maybe white racists been the ones that have, not maybe, but whites have, have uh, hurt and done, uh, been the transgressors. Um, there are still white people who aren't and didn't and don't. Um, but because we look like them, it doesn't mean we are. Mm-hmm. And Amen. that may be weird and, and apropos, and it certainly doesn't take anything away from the injustice and the underprivilege and the privilege argument and all, all the arguments. No, no, I just would love to get away from arguments and just have conversations. So. Um, <coughs> But in order for that to happen, I think those of us who are connected by color to the ones that have hurt need to shut up and listen. Uh, If I could address my African brother, um, African American brothers and sister, I would say as an Asian American that we are with you, that black lives matter, that we understand your pain and your struggle that even though as Asian Americans, we oftentimes, you know, it's thought of as a privileged minority, we know what it feels like to be othered all the time. So I would say we're with you. We're with you in the struggle. We want to be there. We want to lament with you. Uh, We want to be there for you and and build relationships and and understand um, the struggles together. And so I would just offer that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm actually glad that you brought that up because I was going to bring that up too. Um, I wanted to address my Asian brothers and sisters and, and just say that I love you. You know, uh, we love you. I think if there's any good, if you can say, that's come out of this, you know, just this heightened racial tension and oppression, it's uh, I've experienced personally um, even more camaraderie, you know, um, and solidarity uh, with uh, my Asian brothers and sisters. I, I feel their love toward me, and, and, and I went to seminary, you know, with a lot of my brother, Asian brothers and sisters, Korean or Chinese, and, and so I think um, it's knowing me has exposed them to, to some things, and so it's just, I, I just feel a little bit more of a, a solidarity that's, that's happening, and, and so I just want to express, you know, um, my love for that community. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. There's sometimes the race issue is, uh, for good measures, as you guys have pointed out, hijacked between black and white. But yes. when you look around yes. this room, that would exclude mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot people. of people. Yeah. And I like the fact that you guys have, have properly portrayed racism as systemic and as an, uh, a fruit of total depravity in in us. It's it's natural for fallen beings to look at other fallen beings with a skewed perspective and a skewed processing. Um, Last thing uh, as we close up. So can you suggest at least one (laughs) practical step everyone could do beginning today? One practical step, a takeaway. One thing you would suggest to begin doing? They may already be doing it, but something you would like to see them take away from this panel discussion, one thing. In addition to lunch? Yeah, this is lunch. That's true. And it could be for them to give you their lunch. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, Or to take you to lunch. Yes, yes. So so one thing, uh, relinquish your passive approach to friendship. And uh, make a friend with somebody not like you. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. Um, my uh, one thing would be to read, read and learn, you know, about the history um, of racism in this country, so that you're just you're not as taken aback by the events that are actually transpiring now. Say when you read the scriptures, read it through the lens of a, um, or, or try to find in scriptures um, every mention of someone on the margins. Because when you see, when you read the entire New Testament, or even read the Old Testament, which is the nation of Israel, I mean, these are people who are on the margins, and God brought them into the center of His story. So read the Bible in a new way, in a way that looks at Jesus' entire life as continual outreach and relationship building with the other. So at lunch today, you're going to make another friend. You're going to introduce yourself to somebody and hear them a little bit. My next one step is exchange numbers and go out. You know, after today, in the safety of this place, go somewhere and sit down and have a conversation. And you don't have, it doesn't have to be about solving the race issue. <laughs> That's not usually the first conversation I recommend. Just saying. You can start with, you know, hobbies or something. And then uh, and let's give it up for our panelists. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. And 